I love being on a team, whether it's being in a band, like I love that sort of collaborative aspect of it. There's this alchemy that happens where it's like one plus one equals three. It's the best. And one plus one equals blue. You know, that's even better. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Nick Dupay. Nick is a multidisciplinary designer with over 20 years of experience in graphic design, human-centered design, and fine art. He recently joined Co-Collective, a design and strategy agency, as their managing director of experience design. Prior to Co-Collective, Nick spent nine years at famed global design and innovation company, IDEO. He's worked with a wide range of brands, including Ford, Target, City of Boston, and humanitarian aid organization, American Refugee Committee, now known as Alight. The hallmark of all of Nick's work is a deep engagement with the people within an organization. Through interviewing and co-creating with people, he helps define who they are as an organization. Nick also has a background in and deep love for fine art, music, graphic design, and immersing himself in the gritty in-between spaces where creative hives and communities are born out of the necessity to clear new pathways. He thrives on generative connection and critical creative discourse. And I was so engrossed in this conversation that I did not want it to end. Here's Nick. My name is Nick Dupay. I live and work just outside of Boston, but I, I identify with Boston, Massachusetts as, as my home base. I am the managing director of the experience design practice at the design and strategy firm Co-Collective. I'm, I'm drawn to the creative profession, right? Like this is a place that I've always been interested in um, being. You know, I do it because I thrive on creative relationships. I'm interested in sort of solving problems and talking about ideas. And that's been a sort of constant through my life. So I've been very fortunate working at places that have allowed me to do that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Can we go back to zero? I mean, I would like to hear about young Nick's formative years. I understand you grew up in Chattanooga? Yeah, I grew up in Chattanooga. That that would probably have been my formative years. I, I was born in, in the Midwest in Des Moines, kind of moved around a little bit, and then landed in Chattanooga, Tennessee when I was 12 or 13 and lived there for about 25 years. Moving at the age of 13 is like a is a weird time, especially coming like from more of a northern 
place to a southern place. It was a little bit of a culture shock for me going down south and sort of the tail end of middle school. And then I got down there and I kind of made this like conscious choice when I got down there to be like my artistic self, I guess, if that makes sense. Like I was just oh, you like took the 13. opportunity to reinvent yourself. Yeah, right. Like, I don't know if I did it on purpose, <laughs> but I was just, I got down there. I'm like, you know, I cannot fake this anymore. I just gotta, I gotta do me. And so <laughs> this is like the early nineties. So there's a lot of interesting stuff happening culturally at, at that time. And I got, I got deep into you know, the music and obviously movies and cinema art and all that sort of stuff. And that, that kind of became a core for me going into high school. Yeah. So early nineties is like post-punk grunge. What were you into? So before I moved down, I was like really into hip hop music. I got down South and yeah, grunge music was kind of taken off. I mean, MTV was like the center of, of the universe for a tween at that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was, I just remember I would stay up late and watch this show called 120 Minutes on MTV, just like a kind of a cultural lifeline on Sunday nights at midnight. And I would sit there with my like VCR and record music videos that I could, so I could keep listening to them. And that, I think that kind of turned me on to an array of things. A lot of like, yeah, like punk rock music along with things like The Replacements and Minutemen. And I got really into like Brit pop, like was a big deal to me at that time. Okay. Um, I have a deep love for the replacements, by the way. So I'm happy to hear you say that. Oh, the best. Still. Timeless. The way I found that stuff was like, it was kind of through grunge. Like that single soundtrack came out. And then I don't think people realize this, but it's like, there's no internet. So you would get that soundtrack and be like, who's Paul Westerberg? And then you would read an article in like Spin and be like the replacements. And then you'd have to go buy a cassette or a CD. And you didn't know if it was going to be good or bad. Right. You were gambling with your, with your tween allowance. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it or, was, yeah. it was a whole discovery mission that felt like part detective work. Yeah. And it was so exciting to uncover that stuff. Yeah. And it's like real intangible. It was the other part of it. It was like, you have to go out and make a quest and find this stuff at the mall. Like even just getting to the mall or somewhere was like a, a challenge, you know? So when you got it, like now that I know this music, Am I cool enough to buy the t-shirt? You know? And like, <laughs> yeah, and then it's like, yeah. where the hell do I find this t-shirt? You know? and, then, <laughs> and then you're like, you're the guy with the, you know, that dresses this way in school. So I still hold on to that. It's like very dear to me. I mean, I know everything is so accessible now, but like, you know, I still like to sort of go on that hunt and like look at the world around me as a source of like how to sort of create my identity. Maybe this is like a really Gen X thing to do, but I have a tendency to sort of resist Pinterest culture or Instagram culture as a place to find inspiration because I'm it's it feels a little too easy, you know? It feels like the battle isn't discovery, it's battling the algorithm. Do you know what I mean? Which is not nearly as fun as going on a path of discovery. I feel like if the landscape were the same for everyone, like it didn't shift based on what you search for, then you could actually go down paths of discovery. But the algorithms just ruins it, <laughs> I feel like. <laughs> I have like my days with it, right? Like I jumped off Instagram 
for a while because I was just like, I didn't like the way it was making me feel, basically, the social component. And so I came back to it a few months ago. And it felt, it felt kind of like the algorithm was like reset for me. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> and I started like deleting stuff that I thought was kind of noisy because I have kids and a family. So I'm like, it became much more about personal stuff and less about like projecting. I was funny. I was talking to my wife last night about this, talking about like our Instagram algorithms. I was like, I'm getting this steady stream of like AI imagery that people are creating. It's kind of intensely beautiful. And it's like kind of psychedelic and surreal. And she's like, oh, I haven't seen any of this. All I get in my algorithm is like people complaining about AI, but I don't see what they're making or what's being made. And so we ended up like just going through some of these accounts and then hopping on like Dolly and trying to recreate what we were seeing on their accounts. I think my comment to her at that time was just, or last night was just like, this is so cool that it's really bumming me the hell out. <laughs> it's really depressing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I know. I don't know how to feel about it either. It's like both exciting and there is a distinct feeling of it automating creativity in a way that I haven't wrapped my head around how to f- find my agency within it yet. I can't really conceive of how it will touch me and resonate with me the same way. But I mean, I'm not anti. I hear a lot of people, they talk about it like, well, it's a tool. I haven't seen people in my day-to-day life using it as a tool yet. My background is like very much in print design. I like to print things out and then I like to scan it in. And then I like to print it out again and chop it up. And that's another like very like 90s thing of like art chantry. And the way you make punk flyers is like you scan something in. and. Do you know that book fucked up and photocopied? Oh, yeah. I got it right behind me. It's the best. (laughs) Yeah. It's so good. (laughs) He's a friend of mine. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, man. So i that's one of those books where I bought it for a bunch of people. And then I finally was like, I got to hear this for myself. And I think I got it for Christmas a few years back. It's the best. Brian Turcotte of Beta Patrol, by the way. I just got to Yeah. Another thing that is so good that it depresses me. Yeah. (laughs) But I just look at it, I'm like, damn. But that's a collection, right? And that's a collection that is a synopsis of a movement and and an ethos. And it's, it does, it it makes me so excited to have lived through it because I feel like I've got a lot of my scrappiness from that kind of, you know, resourcefulness from living through that time and, and seeing what you could make of what there was around you, you know, without having to follow anybody's recipe or anybody's Pinterest board or, you know, to get inspiration. It was like, I'm going to take a photo of the pavement and then I'm going to cut out this thing, you know, from a magazine and then I'm going to combine it with whatever. It was just such a generative time, I think. Not that it's not generative now. It was generative in a way that also felt kind of homegrown, I think. I love the way you describe that because you have to have a sensibility as you're walking around. Like you have to be kind of in tune to what's happening. You're not waiting for something to be projected onto you, but rather like having a sensitivity to the world around you. And I think to me, that's like the the place that I want to live. And in a conversation that I have with a lot of younger designers is like, you can make this shit out of anything. Yeah. Don't feel like you need this thing because you're special. You have a sensitivity. You feel things. You see things. Your color palette could be what's on the tree. The texture could be 
looking up at the sky and seeing the, seeing the way the leaves overlap, like that's all there, but live in that state because like, if you do, it gets, at least personally, like it gets me closer to this flow state that I want to live in, which is probably like my, just my head being in the cloud all the time. <laughs> like, <laughs> that is a great a place, place to be though. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. so back to you and back to your, your teenage years, um, we sort of skipped your early childhood. Is there anything from there that was super formative or, I mean, what compelled the move to Chattanooga? You took the opportunity to reinvent yourself, but that's also a kind of displacement. Did your f- family stay together or was there a rupture in your family? Yeah, they stayed together. So I was born in Des Moines, Iowa, and lived there until I was about 10. And then we moved to Maryland, kind of outside of Baltimore for about three years. My dad was getting new jobs. Siblings came along when I was getting a little bit older. So I'm, a, I'm about eight years older than my brother and 13 years older than my sister. Um, I see. Okay. And... My sister kind of came along right as we were leaving Maryland to go down south. So I had just been drawing from an early age. Like I would, I would sit down and as a kid, you know, I was born in 1978. So like, you know, Star Wars and all of the eighties stuff, it was a big deal to me. I would sit down and like draw, you know, Star Wars battles happening, like just out of <laughs> triangles and circles, and, yeah. you know. And if your siblings were quite a bit younger than you, it sounds like you had a fair amount of time to occupy yourself, to kind of be in your own imagination. Yeah. Without a doubt. And there's like, there wasn't a lot of television, so I would just kind of kind of sit downstairs. And the way I remember it was just, I would draw a lot. And yeah, you know, I look at my kids now, and I see when they get in that state, that flow state, it makes me feel so good. Because I'm like, oh yeah, like that's... It's a wonderful place to be. But it was also like, there was a little bit of loneliness there too, right? But I was in my drawings, in my zone, in my feelings. Music eventually came along and became a soundtrack to that moment. Up until today, it's still sort of like that, you know? Fast forward to Chattanooga in your teenage years, you've decided to embrace your artistic side. You've kind of described yourself in in the research I did as a, as a teenage weirdo. And I'm... <sighs> <laughs> wondering if you can elaborate on that for me. Like, what kind of weirdo were you? Were the the angsty kind or the awkward kind? Oh, yeah. Definitely the it. angsty kind. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I found the cure pretty early on. and High school was a struggle. I went to a really like, rural high school. I think I just got really provocative with people. I was, like, sick of rednecks. I got in a lot of fights. Sort of goth, like, sort of punk. But when you're in a small town, like... Just all the weirdos kind of hung out together. My buddies were like into Dungeons and Dragons, but a very imaginative group of people. Actually, when I was 15, I got to a point with my family where things were kind of pretty difficult and I I think we weren't getting along. And I ended up going into a group home when I was around 15. And so I lived in a group home from, I want to say 15 to 17. It was just like all boys. And I actually moved from my school I would say, I guess my sophomore year through my junior year to an inner city like school. So I went from like a really white rural school to a primarily African American school in Chattanooga. And those guys that I lived with kind of became my brothers, right? Like my family. And I didn't get messed with as much at this school, less rednecky. It was a tough time. Let's put it that way. Felt isolated. Wasn't really sure if I had a future. Or what it would be. And then I, I had a really bad accident when I was 17. I, 
I had gotten into a, a fight at the group home and left. Like it was November. I was like, I'm done with this. And I like walked out. I saw these guys who were standing outside of a gas station. I was like, oh no, I didn't have a shirt on. Like I fell down into a ditch and ended up like cutting my hand really bad and ended up having to go to the hospital. I lost the use of my right hand, which I'm right-handed for about a year. Oh my God. Almost died. I had hit an artery and a nerve and all all my nerves and uh, tendons and stuff. So it was just like, I kind of had to relearn how to use my right hand after it all. But that was ironically like sort of a bridge that brought me back to my family. Ended up graduating from the rural high school. (laughs) Ended up going back to live with my parents. Yeah, I look back at that time and it, it it's I think that's where a lot of my independence comes from. Whether it's like me being the older brother to start off with or me sort of you know being in this group um situation where I kind of felt like I had to fend for myself. For a while it felt like me versus the world, right? Um, yeah, yeah, I can imagine and I I don't know exactly why your parents put you in a in a group home. Was it a discipline thing or was it a like they couldn't handle you anymore? Like, I just put press the rules. It's normal teenage stuff. Like, I'm not going to cut my hair. I'm going to dress weird. But I think I was very, like, just provocative and, like, would, would argue with everything. At the same time, you know, they were young young parents. They had me when they were very young. So they were working with a, a toddler and a, whatever, an eight-year-old. And their marriage was, was having its own problems. And so when I got back, they ended up separating. It was just, like a perfect storm of like teen angst, young marriage, little kids, new, new place, new jobs and small town, you know, small town. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've spent a long time, you know, over the course of years working through all that stuff, but also just trying to understand it wasn't anybody's specific fault. Yeah, no, I don't hear blame in your voice, but you know, I think it's okay for us to look back on, on trials and tribulations and sort of understand the factors that led to them and also honor the trauma it caused. But it sounds like you've also mined that experience for resilience and independence. And you can see how it forged a kind of spirit within you that is still active today. And I think there were probably seeds of that to begin with. And it really was, you know, formative thing. It's funny because I don't see it. It's my life, you know, so I don't know any different. And like, in my mind, I'm like, everybody goes through shit. You know, they work through it in their own way. And I I still work through it. It informs the way I am as a parent and how I want to parent. So I I try to be optimistic because God knows I spent a lot of time feeling terrible about it. You know, (laughs) and it's just like, I got to keep going. So it sounds like this terrible accident in a way, brought you back together. You graduated from the rural high school. At that point, did you have a vision for your future, or were you feeling kind of aimless, or what happened after that? Well, I, I, I was in a band with a friend of mine, and at that point, I was just singing. Now I, now I play guitar and drums and stuff, but I was like, I'm just going to be in a band. And my girlfriend at the time, who's, who's actually my wife now, my mom ended up moving back to Iowa. My dad moved away. And so I ended up staying in Chattanooga, kind of got adopted by her family. It's just amazing, right? <laughs> and, you know, we're still together and they're my, still my family. And That's um, beautiful. It was actually her mom, uh, my wife's mom, Janet, who she also had sort of 
grown up in a group home and went through her own sort of trials when she was about my age. And so she was very sympathetic and nurturing. She like convinced me to go to community college. She was like, you should just go take one class. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm going to play music. And she's like, I'll pay for it. And so she paid for me to go to uh, Chattanooga State Technical Community College. And I took a took an art history course. And I was like, oh, I like this. And I had a really wonderful teacher there named Ken Page. He was like, man, you should try to take my abstract painting class. I think you'd really like it. And so over the summer, I took that abstract painting class. And my mind just got blown. I was hooked. I was back in that sort of flow-like state that I was in when I was little. That's so great. You know how it is. Like, you, you do this stuff and, like, suddenly the world changes. Like, if you take those contour line drawings, blind contour line drawing class, if you take that seriously, you look around you, everything turns into lines. And, like, at that point, it's like, oh, shit, I am seeing the world differently this is incredible. It's like a little scary actually, you know, like, and I still like cherish that feeling, but I think that's, that was kind of what hooked me on that. Hey, I'm going to stay in school and, and pursue art, fine art painting. Well, three cheers for Janet being that, um, inspirational force. Yeah. <laughs> to get... That's awesome. I design furniture and I, and I make furniture and after doing that for a little while, you start to see the world in an exploded view. You start to see how everything comes together and all the joints of the built world. And then you also learn how to translate that into the invisible systems and, and get to see those. It's a tremendous kind of agency once you sort of unlock that for yourself. So I'm feeling you on finding this place within yourself where you feel like you have this reservoir that's limitless and also a capacity to develop like a real agency with that reservoir. 1000%. In a way, it's like finding your intelligence too. Like I remember like doing art and then I was like, oh, I have to take these like liberal arts classes. You know, I have to take math and science. It's like, I'm no good at any of this stuff, you know, and barely graduated high school. And I took algebra and I just remember because I'd been dealing with abstraction I was like, oh shit, A means whatever I want it. Oh my God, numbers. <laughs> They're not even real. <laughs> you know, my mind is like blowing. And I'm, but I was able to engage with math that way, you know? And I, I, it's interesting you talk about furniture because like that can be a gateway where you begin to start thinking about materials, where those things come from, how they come to be. Like it, it is organic, it's biological, it's engineering. And, you start to ask questions about everything you see around you. Like, this didn't just get stamped out in an anonymous factory. Like, choices were made. Who made those choices? And you start to see forks as, like, objects of design. And, right. you know. <laughs> and, like, that exploration, I mean, just continues, like, through my life. It's, it's actually to your original question. Like, that was a big part. That's a big part of what I seek. It's, like, people who see the world in, in those different ways have that sensitivity and then they blow my mind. Like I'm always looking for that, that drawing teacher, Ken page that I had, you know, and that's what I mean by creative relationships, right? Like, and I've been so fortunate to have so many of them professionally, socially, like I find myself drawn to the, that type of person. Yeah, I've been a part of those scenes too. And I've felt in them, I felt more seen than I have outside of them. 
right? Even though we're all doing our own thing and we're all sort of expressing ourselves, somehow that lends itself to being seen, accepted, and understood for what it is that you're doing and you're bringing to the whole creative soup of the world we live in. I've also just had this magical sense of if when everybody else is exercising their creative agency too, and you're a part of it, and there's this camaraderie or you get to, like I was part of a music scene too, but I don't play an instrument and I don't have that gift. But, you know, going to see you support your friend's band, there was like a constant flow of creativity that I was always like consuming and participating in and supporting, you know, you get to see the iterations of everything in the same way that a gardener feels really connected to, you know, bulbs as they start to grow and bloom, you feel really connected to everyone else's projects and work as they start to grow and bloom. And you feel like part of an ecosystem and a necessary part of it, which is, you know, way different than being a number or on the other side of an algorithm. Without a doubt, especially at a certain age when you're really trying to find your people or if you feel like you, you never really had your people, like, you know, that becomes, it becomes vital. That's tied sort of vitality to it that, you know, to be able to take part, to be able to contribute, to be able to, to sort of see and understand to me, that's community for me. Now it's family, right? I would say that those people's are our family as well in their own way. And it is bound by creativity and shared experience you were part of a vibrant creative community in Chattanooga. It was Young Monster born from that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I went to school and got my degree in drawing and painting. I was still like doing music stuff, playing in bands. So like we were just in that scene. And Chattanooga is like a medium sized city. It's not super small, but like a lot of the people's in, people in the bands like would jump around to different bands. And like, you know, it was, it was great. Legitimately, like, great music that's like known all over the country right because bands are always touring and stuff so super inspiring scene we haven't asked about your band is there a record of it we were called giant tiger it was sort of like a garage punk band there's some music on spotify now we put out one like 10 inch ep played a lot in atlanta and Asheville, north carolina did one tour up the east coast like still all the guys that I was in a band with still love them to this day, like Gabe, who's a guitar player in the band, like still best friends. Him and I went to art school together, did a lot of like collaborations on, on painting projects and stuff like that. So I think in, in studying fine arts and like doing drawing and painting, I got really drawn into like the sort of postmodernism of it all and thinking about like, you know, similar to like how I was describing, like how art was an introduction to like, you know, different schools of, mathematics or science or whatever like it was my way into thinking about social issues politics and i got really into sort of art theory and philosophy some points it was very paralyzing like when you're thinking about like especially a lot of the artists from the 70s um and the sort of earlier postmodern artists who you know were dealing with like simulation and like Baudrillard type stuff or, or, you know, feminism or racial issues at the time, like it became a lot to sort of process and turn into art. But at the same time, like it's still, I think, foundational to how I process the world around me. Right. Is like, just through the sort of art of it all. And like, that's how I kind of oftentimes choose to express 
how I feel about it in process. But this is like like 9-11 happened while I was going through this as well. So it's like, how the fuck do I make sense of all that? I had a little bit of a break and was like working in restaurants, you know, with all my friends. And I was like, I need to like get a job. I was just so burnt out on it all. And so I went back to school to study graphic design. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. 
it's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. I told myself if I was going to do that, I need to make sure that I'm studying it with the mindset of like what I got from my fine arts degree in terms of like, what does design mean? Because you were afraid of just selling out and being a sort of corporate drone. I didn't have much respect for the design students. Okay. (laughs) Which is probably like a pretty normal (laughs) art school, like hierarchy where it's like, you know, the painters like have no respect for the graphic designers. And that was my bad, you know, like it was me being an idiot. So I told myself I was going to go back. Like I need to make sure that I don't let go of like my value system and, that I learned through studying art theory. It was fun. I sort of had that formal education at that point to like, I knew how to make a good picture. I got really turned on again by like things like typography and equating design movements to some of the broader art movements, whether it's like, you know, Dadaists or Fluxus or whatever, like seeing the sort of beauty and the, the design in those movements being like, Oh, I could do that. Like there's a place for this. There's a certain kind of, um, sensibility too that allows you to when you're learning another modality on top of of something that you already consider to be your your forte and your your fuel your nourishment you can approach that new modality not from necessarily a beginner's perspective but from a how do i learn the rules so i can break them kind of perspective for sure that was the hardest part for me it was because i was like a total luddite at that point like you know this is probably like mid aughts right and i had no idea how to use computers and was like proud of it and then i was like you know that was my school was a big part of my schooling was like how do i export a pdf (laughs) you know Um, i was like a true boomer at that age that was also mind-blowing because i think it opened my eyes to like the possibilities of technology which is still like a really fascinating thing to me it got me into like thinking about like hypertext, which is like cute now that I think about it. Um, (laughs) Technology became sort of a really interesting expression of my like ongoing debate about like whether modernism has a use 
in the world. <laughs> you know, like, it's fucking oh. modern. I, I had a healthy distaste for modernness, um, <laughs> which I think is probably softened as I've gotten older and been able to buy nice furniture. <laughs> I'm like, ah, I see what they're talking about now. So graphic design skills, computer skills. What's your early professional life like? And how do you get to IDEO? Because you spent nine plus years at IDEO, which I, it sounds to me like was foundational for, you know, who you are as a professional today. So I really want to hear all about, I guess, the personal trajectory of growth that you went on while you were there and what kinds of work you did and how you formed your philosophies for how you work now. I worked really hard in my second degree. I had a couple of jobs and an internship at the same time as going to school. And I got an internship at this, what was called a sustainable design firm called Tricycle that worked with the interiors industry to sort of come up with like ecological solutions to interior design, architecture, stuff like that. So I was a graphic designer there, an intern, and then I got the job when I got out of school. So I was really lucky to sort of land in a job that I enjoyed. The C, I guess the chief brand officer, the founder, was a guy named Michael Hendricks. He was also my professor. He ended up leaving Tricycle and going to IDEO, and we remained friends. He's, like, incredible, like, next level. And I'm still, like, a friend, mentor. I think he has an affinity for, like, people who poke at things. <laughs> so he ended up going up there. I ended up staying at Tricycle and writing a grant with a friend of mine to start a printmaking company. And that's sort of how Young Monsters started. I ended up reaching out to some friends or to some people actually that I admire. It's this guy, Zach Hobbs, who's just a amazing designer. And we sort of started this little art collective um, where we just made posters. I ended up getting so busy with that like screen printing and designing that I couldn't do it with my job. And so I was like, I'm just going to try to see if this will be a thing. Got a space and started doing that. Was super broke, made no money, <laughs> like nothing, like less than 10 grand a year. But it was like a crash course in like design. And I was constantly making things and playing music. But I, I got to a point after a few years where I was getting burnt out and my girlfriend now wife we talked about it and we're just like we need to get out of tennessee it's a tough beat here because the politics and we, we just needed a change like we had some friends in seattle and we're like well let's just move there and like keep doing what we're doing up there and then i hit up michael who was up in boston at idea and i was like i'm so fed up with tennessee i gotta get out of here he's like you should play at idea i was like i don't want to work at your big corporation <laughs> and, and he was like, I don't think you know what you're talking about. I'm like, you're right. <laughs> and so I applied and uh, for like a junior communication designer role and flew up there with like a, an actual physical portfolio of like posters interviewed in a room full of like. Like a giant flat file that doesn't even fit on the airplane. <laughs> Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. I was like, uh, how do I get this in? They put me up in a, like a fancy hotel and I'm like in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm like, holy shit. Went up into this nice, like, you know, office and there was like 10 designer e looking people in there. I didn't know how to interview for like jobs. You know, I had no idea. And so I just came in with this stuff and I threw it on a table. I was like, what do y'all want to talk about? Like, it was funny. Like I spent probably five hours interviewing like with different people flew back home 
and I was working at a place called the Pickle Barrel. It's like a, a like a dive bar. <laughs> you know, they're like, you think you got the job? And I'm like, fuck if I know. Mm-hmm. And then they, they hit me back up and they're like, hey, can you show us a little bit more work that like, you know, is a little more buttoned up? And I was like, oh, you want to see the boring stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, I can show you the boring stuff. So I got the job. Yeah, we came up here and like have been up here for 12 years now. And IDEO just like was a whole nother creative journey where I think I learned about human-centered design. Got to reconnect with with Michael again, which is amazing. A, a ton of other people, including like like Jane Fulton Surrey, who is just like constantly blows my mind. She was, you know, she's one of the the people that was sort of crucial to the foundation of like human centered design and and ethnography and design. And I think what I I loved was like was so invigorating was like not the graphic designers, but like every other type of person who identified as a designer were the people that like kept me going. Yeah, I mean, I can see that you've been fortunate. And even though you kind of don't seem like you've cultivated it, because you're like, I don't want to work for your corporation. (laughs) (laughs) What do you guys want to talk about? And oh, you mean the boring work? It does seem like you you can't not be bringing something to the table or else these relationships would fall apart, right? It sounds to me like when you get there and you get into this discourse where you're learning from them and you're appreciating how your world is being broadened, that becomes a really reciprocal, generative kind of space for you and and for the others too. I mean, that's reciprocal. That's the nature of mutuality. So even though you, it's, it would seem that you're reluctant, um, <laughs> clearly you are <laughs> cultivating these situations for yourself that are, they do keep you immersed in a really fertile playground for a creative. They do, yeah. In the research that I did on you, it says one of the projects you did at IDEO that you were most proud of was the work you did with Alight, which was formerly the American Refugee Committee. Can you talk about that real fast? I mean, that's a project, I think, that has a lot of parts, but also a lot of humanity. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, you're right. Like, I love being on a team. I'm actually a big sports fan. I just like teams. Uh, (laughs) But like, whether it's being in a band, like, I love that sort of collaborative aspect of it like i'm the type of person that likes bands where it's like the songs are written by the whole band yeah yeah, yeah. they don't credit like one person yes i've been fortunate i think i bring something to to those there's this alchemy that happens where it's like one plus one equals three yes alchemy is a great word for it yeah it's the best and one plus one equals blue you know that's even better right like and and you can be divergent at ideo like the projects were always like that you were teamed with two, three other people, you'd work on a problem for three months, you get to do the research, you get to travel, you come up with the insights, you prototype. We could do the same project with different people and never come out the same. And so I was a part of that. Like I would bring the visual side or I'd bring some divergent thinking, but it was always a pleasure to sort of overlap with like business designers or design researchers who had a different point of view on the world. But yeah, Alight was a huge project. And I think like that project came at a point where I started being in more of a leadership role. You know, I think it's easy to sort of say, like, I'm interested in growing people. But the older I got, like, it's it's, it's actually hard to, like, find that joy as you sort of identify with, like, I am the things that I make, the stuff that I make, to I am defined by the success of, of other people and their growth. It's easy to say, but, like having that feeling it's addictive you know 
where you're just like, man, I'm so proud of somebody. Uh, that's where I was in my career with when a light came along and it was, it was a project with IDEO.org and they had been working with them for years. And they finally got to a point where we want to rebrand because we've been practicing a version of human centered design. Our approach to humanitarian aid is, is based in sort of the abundance of the people we're helping. So we should co-create with them and we need to rename ourselves. We need to express this better. I was a managing director of the Cambridge studio and it was one of those projects where it was like, it didn't pay a lot, but it was like, we couldn't afford not to do it because it was so, so meaningful. And at that point, Zach Hobbs, who was my colleague, one of my collaborators at Young Monster, I got him to come to work at IDEO. And Whoa, so that's awesome. Him, yeah. So it was Getting like the band back were, together. <laughs> exactly. And it was actually like the first project where we, we worked together. We would come up with our own stuff all the time. There was influence, but we never were on a project together. So it was like me and him and a couple of people from IDEO.org, a guy named Sebastian Park and a woman named Aya. And we ended up going to do some research in Uganda, Rwanda, and Congo, DRC, for a week. And we're like, how are we going to come up with insights? How do we sort of come up with a brand identity and a new name. And we just went with stacks of colored construction paper, some glue sticks. And we're just like, we want, let's everybody that we work with make a flag for like what this organization means to you. And afterwards we had this like tapestry of like, like a quilt of sort of these vibrant, beautiful colors, lots of great conversations, heavy conversations with people about sort of, for abundance in the face of like brutal scarcity. And this was with actual refugees or? Yeah, displaced people, people who work for a light who are like in the field. So we went to like Nakia Valley, which is a, a, an encampment. It just had a, a profound impact on me and like not in a sort of like, I mean, yes, there's a component of how like me feeling like, oh, how lucky I feel and all this stuff, but like, also just like some of the most creative, awesome, badass people I've ever met. And like the conversations we were having were about creative, awesome, badass stuff. It was that same connection that we've been describing this whole time. I have a bit of a fraught relationship with this whole process that I'm describing. Like, like human-centered design feels a little extractive um, to say like, oh, I went and hung around a bunch of people and then I turned it into art. Like, that's, Right, and now I, I've absorbed their perspective and I can design for them to save them from themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and so like, I think with that project, it was a conversation we had a lot. I, I think one of the things we talked about with that project is like, let's try to design this in a way that like, when we're done, it can evolve into what it really truly should be, right? And so we tried to like create this system and this toolkit, but the the real work I think was when it was like, okay, how do we launch this to the different spaces where a light is in so that everybody can take these tools, colors, lines, shapes, give folks paint and have them make their expression. They called it like the year of becoming a light and we launched, you know, their values books and, and all this sort of stuff. I think to me, that was the magic. And that's what the, the brand is now, which is like, they just took paint to these places and said, like, paint our whole headquarters, uh, these colors, like do whatever you want. Like Rwanda. Oh my God. Like their headquarters. It was the most a light building I had ever seen. It was all the employees, every background 
was like coming together to make it. To me, that's like the, the pride that I see. But the biggest one was like this WhatsApp channel where we opened up a WhatsApp channel. And I think the WhatsApp, like their channels cap out at like a thousand people. So I'm in one group called Changemakers. And every day I was seeing like, you know, 50 plus images coming through this channel of people doing stuff with the brand. I'm, I'm like looking at it now. I'm like trying to open it up. Yeah, it's the top one. There's like 600 things in here. People are still like putting expressions of the brand in this Changemakers channel. This is like three years later. That's really amazing because at that point, you've transferred the authorship to them. So they can not only exercise and develop their own creative agency, but they can feel the sense of pride, the very tangible accomplishment of changing the world, literally, aesthetically, by painting something, right? There's a very tangible measure there. That was that way one, you know, one moment, and now I did something to it, and it's different. That impacts people in a way that I don't think we give enough credit to. The sitting down and making these collages with people was like, you know, we might be in a group of like 15 people. That was the brand. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That moment was us. That was us expressing to see that now expand globally and to see that like people are continuing to do this and it is a rolling stone. I don't care what it looks like. Like the fact that people are continuing to express and continuing to connect in that way is really like vital. That's all I care about in the world. right? You fostered a living thing. Exactly. And like, it's that sort of energy and momentum in the face of tough situations. Like that's what a light is all about. Like that's what they care about. You know, that's at the core of who they are, which is when you compare it to like, you know, some of the other humanitarian aid organizations that deal in scarcity, you know, for just the price of a cup of coffee a day, they prey on you in that way. What they're saying is like, there's joy there is like dignity and there's power in every person. We just need to come together and find that within each other and, and we'll thrive. It makes me so happy to see, like I, I could be participate in that. I've been working with them ever since I left IDEO. So that's beautiful. And it must add some meaning to your work that you're doing. You can, sort of go to sleep at night thinking, okay, yeah, well, today was a well-spent day, <laughs> you know? <laughs> For sure. Like I said, I continue to work with them. And I remember I was on a call doing some research. I, I, I helped with their sort of search for their next CEO and worked with their board to kind of formulate like what is a, a transparent way to seek people within our organization, how we start with our CEO. And I was doing research for that. And I was talking to a lot of people um, globally and I was on the call with somebody from Uganda um, just doing an interview and on January 6th, the day of the insurrection. And like we're talking and I'm like looking at my television. I'm like, holy shit, like something is going down. We continued that conversation and then we got on a call the next day and Uganda was in the middle of like pretty fraught elections at that time. And I just remember she was like, how are you doing? I can't imagine, you know, she's like talking to me, like asking how I'm doing. And I just, I felt so lucky at that moment. to like, we had each other and we were in completely different contexts, completely other side of the world. That's like selfishly, like one of the sort of beautiful 
parts of my profession and what I get to do is like, you know, we get to, I get to connect with people. Like that's kind of core to how I create. And in moments when bad shit's going on, like fortunate to like meet people who are like, especially at a light, like their whole thing is like, they put caring for other people first. I went to sleep that night and it was like, the world is falling apart. Oh my God. Like we had each other, you know? This is like a weird thing that I just feel compelled to say based on that story. You just casually said that it was selfish of you to enjoy that. But that's not selfish. Right? Like, but we all say that it's a figure of speech, but don't you think that needs to be rebranded? Because if we think of it as selfish to enjoy that kind of human connection, it's not a vice though. And it's not greed. I know what it, what they're getting at. It just means like, I'm enjoying this too much, but it still doesn't feel right to call it selfish. Part of that is probably some deep seated, like Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. I'm sure. Um, That, like, that's that I don't deserve this or ingrained in our society over generations and generations, for sure. I think there's another part of it, too. And I've thought about this a lot in the past couple of years, especially since leaving IDEO, is my work isn't me. I've said it this whole time, like creativity is me. I'm fortunate to be able to work in the business of creativity. But I've like really tried hard since leaving IDEO to to make sure that like, I'm not going to call my, my colleagues, my family. And it's a slim divide, but I think it's like really important people to understand a creative relationship is even though it feels like a family and there's a transference of emotion and support and all, it's really wonderful and special. It's different than family. It's important to recognize that because capitalism, right? Like (laughs) it will run all over your boundaries if given the chance. I think that's part of, along with guilt, is saying, like, you know, we needed each other in that moment, but I was also working. That line I have to be aware of at times. I just want to laugh at it because, like, this job can be pretty stupid sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's kind of ridiculous. Like, I've been asked, like, to solve really dumb problems for a lot of money. And you just have to sit back and be like, what? Like, that's ridiculous. So... Like make I, the logo I try not bigger to make stuff. Sure that, yeah, like the falling asleep at night thing is like work shouldn't be that important, at least to me. I'm still grappling with all that. Yeah, yeah, it, it, I can hear you hear you grappling with it, and I am too because this podcast is my work, but it's also my creation, and I also made it because I want to have these conversations. Like this is my vehicle for having these conversations with you know people like you, which I totally get high on. It's still work, and and I need to also find a healthy balance between this and other things, you know, and I'm grappling with it. And actually I'm failing miserably. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like, it's not going to be solved, right? Like it's not, it's not something you ever like get to and you're like, Oh, I fixed this. It's like, (laughs) you're you're always going to be kind of working through it. But I, I find myself these days, like what's that line? Like take your passion and make it happen. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's always at odds with like passion is a fashion, you know, like <laughs> focusing in on, on art and my career. I did it for 10 years at the expense maybe of cultivating a different type of relationship. The kids made me think about that a lot, but also like there was a lot of loss. When I moved to Boston within like four years, I had lost 
probably six or seven friends down in Tennessee to either suicide or drugs. Uh. You know, it like felt like mental health epidemic sort of thing. To me, it just spoke to like this loneliness and they were searching for something. And I was like, oh, I found it at this job. And then I'm like, ah, this isn't, they were important. You know, these were my friends, these were my family. Like, I guess like, it's just constantly reminding yourselves of what's important and the happiness that's at the center of those things at the core of those things and making sure that you find real joy in them. So maybe you can help me with that. Like, how do you find real joy? It takes more practice and and effort than we ever thought, right? I think children grow up with easy access to joy and little responsibility. And, you know, there's all this talk about how we forget it or it gets trained out of us. and, And I think that's true, too. But somewhere at the center of our being is the ability to feel joy like a child. And we can probably bring that up to the surface and exercise it and practice it regularly if we give ourselves permission to. But I don't really know how. Uh, to me, it's like got to be rooted in mindfulness. And I don't know how if I'm that good at mindfulness because there's a lot going on. But as you were saying that, it's like, where, did I, where have I found it the most recently? I would say like the other day my son was, he went to basketball practice and then came home. And he, he was really upset in the car because he was like, they didn't pass it to me. And he's brand new to playing basketball. He's eight. I was like, buddy, you had some good plays. It's not about shooting. You know, there's like other facets to this, but it's like, it's your first time. Like you're going to get back, you're going to practice, you're going to get better. And he just sat outside shooting hoops. It's cold, right? At Boston. And he's like outside shooting hoops for like an hour and a half. Like when we got home, he was locked in. He was in a, he was having a blast by himself. And I just stood there looking out the window, like so proud and so happy for him. Because he was enjoying it. You know what I mean? And I I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, this is why old people go to the park to watch kids. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I I could just sit sit there and watch my kids play when they're, like, really in it. I think the difference is, is, like, we have such synthetic joys in our lives, you know? Like, like whether it's, like, for me, it's, like, I struggle with, like, drinking or smoking or goddamn technology it's just constant it's so easy to just gloss over your your kid playing you know because i'm like oh i'm gonna look at some ai bullshit on my phone (laughs) that being said i probably look at more ai bullshit (laughs) you know like there's there's a little bit of guilt there so that's the mindfulness part of it is like slowing down fortunately the older i get my body's just slowing down on it. So yeah. my mind's just yeah, it's slowing kind down. Of forcing like, it on you. <laughs> yeah. I like, can't remember things. I'm like, oh. But uh, I get like real itchy when people talk about like dopamine hits. You know, they're like, oh, this will give you like a dopamine hit if you do, if you do this thing. Just like the feeling you get when somebody likes your photo on Instagram. You know, it's just like, oh, it makes you feel good for a second. I'm like, wow, that's grim. <laughs> It's really grim. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, that's a designed thing. <laughs> I know. I know. Like, it's Silicon evil. Valley needs to fuck off. And I'm, I was part of that type of design for, for 10 years. Still am. But I'm like, it's my responsibility to talk to the clients beyond dopamine hits and be like, can we talk about a higher order of, of need and utility? 
because surprise and delight is not a valuable insight. Surprise and delight is like a gateway to excuses for how you're going to ruin people's life and make them feel terrible. Your design needs to like serve a higher order for people and help them in a deeper way. Do you say that to your clients? I said it yesterday. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> to, That's to like a, to That's a major. Why we need more punk rockers in, in design. <laughs> this is like to a major tech client. The funny thing is, individually, everybody agrees with that. Collectively, it's harder. It's a combination of capitalism pulling against your very like need for survival. And it creates this tension that almost requires somebody with a punk ethos to go in there and like rip it up and reconfigure it. I don't think there's any hope for old people like me. I think it's like the younger people who I'm more, most excited about. I mean, I think that's why you do the Lord's work is like you grow people. Your job is to grow people and like you're shaping minds. That's the important part. I heard some stat and I don't know if it's true, but like somebody told me once, it was like, well, there's only like 20% of the population, which how would you know that, that are compelled as a part of their identity to be creative as they get older. Like they find their sort of purpose and creativity. I think it's a minority, right? Like it's bred out of people pretty early of like, you know, like, and so you capture these people who like want to be creative. They have by virtue of their age, oftentimes they have that sort of desire to, to want to change the world, tear down the system. And like, to me in my, in my job, I'm like, when those people come around, I'm like, please, I'm going to be a vampire and feed off of your energy because this is what we need. You know I feel I mean? more like an arms dealer. I'm like, I'm going to give you all the ammo and all the weapons <laughs> right, you need. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And like, to me, that's like the most important part. I do what I can. I'm just so impressed by these Gen Z years. I am too. Every day they blow me away. So smart, but they also know how to care for each other better than my generation. And so accepting of, of each other, of fluidity, of the sort of diversity of the world. And, and they're mad at us about the planet and they have every right to be. But there's, there's a kind of, I don't know, it gives me real hope because there's a kind of fertility because they, I feel like they're, really helping each other grow in a way that feels way more fertile than a kind of competitive system, social system that we grew up in. Honestly, I just think they're cool too. Yeah. Like they're yeah. just like, they're like cool operator. Shit just rolls off their shoulders. Ah, oh, you know, like this is like such a generalization, but like I'm like tip of the iceberg Gen Z ish. And it's nothing goofier than talking about like generations of people, but like, definitely don't necessarily identify with like a millennial world which is where you know the world that i designed in mostly my career but like i just get so much energy from like just the way that this younger generation behaves yeah their fluidity their support to me it sounds big like it's like oh you're so brave to say you need a mental health break and to them they're like yeah what, what are you talking about that's my brain 
Right. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not giving I'm it to that. you, and I'm not going to sacrifice <laughs> it for what? Yeah. Some arbitrary rule that, like, where did it get you? Didn't get you very far. <laughs> I'm like, right, oh, yeah, you're, right. You're right. And they've weathered so much shit. Like, they were born into instability, so I get excited about, like, to me, they're the ones that are going to be extra brave. And there's a lot of them. <laughs> as much as, like, we can say something to these, like, you know, tech companies and, and what design means. I think they're, they're actually going to be living in and in, in that world and, and changing it, which is, is good stuff. I'm excited to see it all unfold. So you look like we can sit back and watch them play. The part of my life that is in education is extremely joyful. It's not the admin side, obviously, but it's the watching the light bulbs go off and, you know, fostering the relationships and feeling so proud of them and knowing that it's, it's their own. It's not really anything I did. I just am adjacent to it in some way and they're flourishing. And that's just awesome to see. (laughs) Planning for your next trip, elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I don't want to let you go if we haven't covered your your story. And I feel like we didn't even get to the latest chapter of your life in terms of work. Like you're now the head of experience design at Co-Collective. I mean, I know that we've talked a lot about boundaries and that you're not your work. But at the same time, maybe you can tell me a little bit about what you hope to accomplish in that role. The way I've I got into this role was I, I was doing a freelance independent contractor thing for a couple of years and recruiter reached out to me. I was like, Hey, there's this position open. And I was introduced to one of the founders, Ty, Ty Montague. We had really good conversations, talked with the managing director of experience design. 
it's like, I don't really want a job <laughs> again. I don't want to work at your big corporation. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't really want a job right now, but I'm happy to sort of help you define what experience design is at Co. And so I, I kind of worked as a contractor with them, you know, worked with really great people during that project. And they're like, Hey, we're, we're doing a project with a, a client. Would you like to freelance on that? I was like, yeah, sure. Yeah. It was my relationship with those folks. I was like, oh, I miss this. Like I really miss this. And so after three quarters of a year of probably playing like hard to get, I was like, is that job still? And they were like, yeah. So I started in earnest probably around Labor Day of 2022. My explicit role is to build a business and a, and a practice around experience design, which is, is basically like taking Co's sort of vision for like creating, you know, purpose filled companies and endeavors in the world and making those strategically a reality. The experience design is like, how do we take that sort of purpose-centered mindset and use it to launch new products, services, experiences, et cetera? So it's a little bit like human-centered design and what I was doing at IDEO. But I think, you know, our goal is, I see it as like helping organizations find their heart and then acting upon it in a way that makes sense. My covert job, and it's maybe a little bit self-serving, is like, I just want to do what we're doing right here. Like, I just want to have creative conversations with people and make creative shit and build a creative culture, which actually it is sort of a part of my job is like an explicit mandate. Take us from feeling like an office to feeling like a studio, you know, like that, that feeling of like collaboration, seamless back and forth. And that's what I'm really going for. That means something in the world. Like people are fucking pure when they play that way and work that way. And, I want to do that inside a co and then I want to extend that, that feeling to, to clients so that people can be real with each other and find that sort of joy and collaboration. It's a lot of work though. Cause I mean, I'm a, I'm also a manager and so like I have to build a business and you know, the economy is what the economy is right now. And, um, I find myself thinking about what is next in design. We've been living in a world of like digital design that is about acquiring users, users, it's a weird word to call people. <laughs> it's like acquiring people, but not having them pay for anything. And now these businesses are saying like, oh, it's time to pay up. Like Twitter is like the best shit show example of that right now. But I think a lot of people are coming for a return on their investment. And I'm like, what does that mean for design? I think design is going to have to really think about its utility and the value of its utility. Because, I mean, you can argue this. Is Twitter valuable? <laughs> I don't know what it's done for society. <laughs> well, I mean, I can tell you one thing it's done for me. I'm not an active tweeter. I, I use it to promote my podcast and stuff. But for years, I followed Black Twitter just because I could, eavesdropping. And I love Black Twitter. I, I love it. I learned so much. And... I feel like it taught me a lot. And so I was really grateful for that kind of a cultural education that I felt like I could get without burdening anybody hmm. because I was just eavesdropping on public conversations, kind of doing a bit of discovery about who to follow and, and who the thought leaders were and who the, who the people were that I thought were really interesting. And it was a fascinating like cultural rabbit hole that I could access without, you know, making them, feel like I was the white person in the room. That was one thing I enjoyed. 
it connects. And I think that's like sort of, it's just in my mind, it's like this funny distillation of the freeness of the internet. And it has like very specific parameters and the way it works and everything, but is an example of, is an avatar of like what the internet is. Like it's a, a really like a perfect case study also in the way that it sort of refuses to be monetized. Like Elon Musk is not going to make that a wealthy place because what business model do you apply to it? Unless there's some sort of business model that I've never heard of that will monetize like conversation. And so his whole thing about like, oh, it's, you know, town hall, blah, blah, blah. But he's, he's got to make money at this. And he's very clear about like, this is going to shut down. He's going to manage it into the ground. But like, if I look at that and I think like with my designer hat on and I say, think about like, so there's this like human value that you're describing of like connection with people, communication, you know, my idea in me is like asking the, how might we question Honestly, it's like, but it's a challenging one now because when I think about the future design, it's like, how might we design systems to connect with people? And then business is going to say, that isn't free. <laughs> and I'm like, oh shit, designers, what are you going to do when that, that's the brief? It's a new type of brief. And I think like a lot of companies are, like a lot of the tech companies are going to be in this world now where it's like, People are going to demand that their thing can't be free anymore. I've been sort of immersed in the value of design. Like lately, I've been thinking about the value of design as it applies to policy and social design. And those are aspects and frameworks that deploy design in a way that they have participants, but they don't necessarily have a monetary sort of winner and not extractive. It's more generative. And I think if we can think in terms of generativeness and ecosystems where there's a balance and it naturally wants to grow, that's where we can, whatever that is, what that looks like, however you can apply that, that's where the value of design is, is creating generative ecosystems. That's good. That's <laughs> you <like> true. That? <laughs> yeah, I love I, it. I, I absolutely think it is true. Yeah, it's basically like law or politics or which is just law like and bullshit makes it like law <laughs> like you know social structures like a super valuable and it like the facilitation and conversation and the act of being together and all that stuff is design can live there in a really powerful way i love that it's where i see organizational design like org design becoming this is a really super exciting space for design right now yeah, and I think of your role as, you know, in charge of culture at, at Co. And if you can build this generative ecosystem culture within the organization, then it naturally sort of it impregnates everything you do with your clients because that's where you're coming from. That's the basis you're operating from. I, I think that could be a really powerful way to utilize your, your your skills, your tools in the world. But I do think it does start with a very sort of hyper-local cultivation sensibility and that but hyper local doesn't necessarily mean like geographically local it means like my sphere of influence which i'm talking to you in boston over the internet so that can be whoever's listening to this right but cultivate from that place expand it out bring people in operate with an attitude of invitation to participate 
and then let it become its own thing the same way like with a light. It's not like within your control. It's as seeds that got spread in the wind, you know? It's an energy. I took this course like my first go around at college. It was like a summer course in London called like the Cross Atlantic Call and Response. And it was about like the effects of like English music on American music and back and forth. And like, um, there's a name for call and response, but this idea of like, when you say amen and then everybody else says amen, right? Like we started from like, you know, spirituals and English folk songs all the way up to like Bruce Springsteen and then hip hop. I think that call and response is something I always go back to is like, if you can say amen and then you ask everybody else to say amen with you, you're glued together. Like it happens and music is so good at doing that. Like the way you were describing, like, it's like, I didn't play in the bands, but I was part of it. It's like, yeah. And I think design done well. I actually think IDEO is amazing at it. And like, I hope they don't lose their way as an organization because they're in my mind, like this big dome of that. Like they bring the clients along and they command a price and, and it's really, really important. And I see it in pockets. Like, I, I think we can do it at Co. Like, I see it in pockets with some of my former colleagues who've gone on to work in, like, the public sector. And I think it's really powerful you brought up the concept of call and response, because baked into that is a kind of active listening that has to happen. And the response isn't typically just a regurgitation of what you just heard, but it's a it's a response to it. It's a reaction to it. It's a through a different lens, through a different filter. And then the active listening that happens on the other side throws it back. It, that is a generative ecosystem. But the, the key thing to me there is the active listening because it's a yes and way of being, right? I'm not trying to beat you or trounce you or be better than you even though there might be a little spirited, you know, sort of elevating the game. It's more like I'm trying to I'm trying to listen carefully, interpret it, embody it and figure out what my response to that would be and then offer that up to the collective sort of response. The active listening piece isn't did I hear it accurately? It's did I get the intention? Did I hear truly where this was coming from? Right. That, I think, is something we move too fast in this society to really do well every day. And it's like when you're in that situation, yeah, you actively listen, you hear it, you listen. And then does it like stick to you when you go home? You know, like, am I still thinking about it? Has it sort of found a place in my, in my consciousness and my belief systems? And, that's impact, right? Like, and we, we always think about impact at like impact at scale is like, that's just code for like more money, but like impact is scale. And a human being is like, yeah, it's infinite. Like I spent a lot of time like writing belief statements for organizations. I was working on a project with, for a, a, a biotech startup here in Boston called Archaea. They're a, a startup in residence for Ginkgo Bioworks really like incredible organization that like looks at the power of biology and, and says like, you know, we can, we can grow things. Right. I was working with a, a woman named Elise Lohannon who was formerly um, brand 
CBO of Goop. And her and I were kind of collaborating on like, how do we sort of build this brand for this biotech cosmetics startup? And she was like, she's so much fun to collaborate with because her brain is just like, I mean, it's like this conversation. It's just like going in all sorts of different areas. But we had a great conversations around like, do we write belief statements or do we talk about faith? And like, what is the difference between faith and belief as you're sort of designing a brand and an organization? And I think maybe it was a little like, just like <laughs> to be provocative, but we were like, let's write statements of faith. Like, what do they have faith in as scientists? <laughs> and, you know, Ooh. scientists are like, what do you mean by faith? We landed in this space about sort of expressive biology. Like, what can biology express? They totally believe that it can express everything. The world is biology. It's a really powerful thought. But faith speaks more to, like, the imagination, right? This leap of faith. And it's, it's kin to belief, but it's different. It's different. Is it faith that the universe will continue to morph and expand to preserve itself? Is it faith that my fellow humans will deploy these tools in an ethical way? Is it right. faith that, that us monkeying with biology in this way is actually going to serve humanity and the planet? Because those things aren't scientifically proven yet or even measurable, but you'd have to have faith in order to engage all your energy and effort in that to move it forward. It's wisdom. It's like saying, like, I am wise enough to not know, even though my entire career is and, and purpose in life is to experiment and prove through sort of, uh, you know, the scientific method and logic. And yet <laughs> it's faith in a, in a outcome that is unpredicted. Exactly. Cause you don't know. You don't know. I just adore working with Elise because it's like, that was at the heart of like our conversations was like, it's gotta be something more than just like we're scientists and we believe something and we know everything. It's not cause we're they're They're rooted in imagination. They're rooted in sort of saying, we don't know, let's see. And then the possibilities are, something that we can't even fathom because that's fucking biology. You know what I mean? Like we can grow human hearts. Like what? <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah. like that's creation. Like, Oh my God. Like personally, I'm like, I have to be careful and, and aware using words like that, but it is like speaking to that idea of like, you know, just the hippiness of like energy coming together, listening, believing, and like, I do, yeah, you're right. Like, I think the future of design lives in a sort of a social sphere of connectivity that feels less superficial. Like, that's why biology is so interesting to me because it's like, let's just stop talking about technology for a minute. Like, why is technology our basis for, I mean, I just said it talking about Twitter. Why is that our basis for design? It's like, because it makes a lot of money. But there's so many other things to design uh, and so many more interesting mediums that I'm curious about, you know? Well, I can't wait to see all of the experiments that come from you. <laughs> Moving forward, this has been a really nutritious conversation for me. And I thank you so much for spending so much time with me. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. I really appreciate it. 
Hey, thanks so much for listening. For a transcript of this episode and more about Nick, including images of his work and a bonus Q&A, head to cleverpodcast.com. If you like Clever, please support us by telling three of your friends who might like it too. You can listen to Clever on any of the podcast apps. Please do hit the follow or subscribe button in your app of choice so our new episodes will turn up in your feed. We love to hear from you on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Please stay tuned for upcoming announcements and bonus content. You can subscribe to our newsletter at cleverpodcast.com to make sure you don't miss a thing. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Alana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011.